0: is changing extreme temperatures and weather events are causing wildfires droughts floods and storms there's disruption to global supply chains volatility in markets and the growing impact of climate-fueled conflict climate change is already changing where people live and what their lives look like half the world's population live in urban areas so our cities are a key contributor to climate change but they're an integral part of the solution too So what needs to happen so that our cities can adapt and grow their resilience in this ever-changing world? You're listening to the ITN Business Extra podcast on cities of the future. I'm Marianne O'Hotter, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing decarbonisation, climate adaptation and resilience, and urbanisation with a great panel. In the studio with me is architect Jack Pringle, founder of Studio Pringle, chair of the Board of Trustees and former president of the Royal Institute of British Architects, RIBA. Joining us remotely are Anna Yang, the Executive Director for the Chatham House Sustainability Accelerator. Chatham House is an international relations think tank based here in London. And Lisa Chamberlain, Urban Strategist and Communications Lead for the Centre for Urban Transformation at the World Economic Forum three great guests. Thank you all for joining me today. Okay, so let's start, Jack, with decarbonisation. First of all, what do we mean when we talk about decarbonisation? And what does that have to do with cities of the future?
1: Okay, well, uh, hello there. Uh, Thanks for having us on the show. Decarbonisation of cities is basically reducing the carbon output that cities generate through the everyday use that comes in a number of ways, the energy that's supplied to them, and we need to decarbonize the grid. That's not my main concern, because I'm an architect, I'm concerned with the built environment. But the built environment contributes about 40% of CO2 into the atmosphere. So it's really quite huge. Cities are a large part of that, as you say, now 55% of the world's population lives in cities, that's over 4 billion people. It's absolutely enormous. Transport is part of that. So how we organize our cities, how far people have to travel to get to, you know, from their homes to their work, to the places where they, they want to recreate, et cetera, or, or be educated. So reducing transport links or decarbonizing transport is a huge part of that. And then the bit that architects tend to focus on is, of course, the buildings and the urban landscape our new buildings are actually relatively easy to address we're designing new really clever buildings there's regulations that we can bring to bear we're designing lower and lower carbon buildings than we've ever done before the big issue though is the existing building stock by 2050 80% of the buildings have already been built and decarbonizing that is really quite difficult
0: how do you decarbonize old buildings
1: well you attack it on maybe broadly two fronts. One is to try and reduce the amount of energy they use and then to make a more efficient way of generating the either the heating or, or the cooling that they need to function properly. Mm. And you have to understand that we're in a very tricky economic situation. So household budgets are really stretched. So what we've got to come up with is some clever way which doesn't hit the household budget that we can systematically change, decarbonise the existing building stock.
0: Lisa, Anna, let's bring it out to a a kind of more global perspective. So that's the UK focus. How does this play out in developing nations where cities are rapidly expanding, where a huge proportion of the population who are living in vulnerable, tenuous built environments from the start? Anna, what are your thoughts? How do we decarbonise
2: from a global perspective? Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. So I think just building on Jack's point on sort of the challenge for the city is even if we have enormous amount of stocks of buildings that have already been built, if we consider that the projection from the UN is that we're going to have another additional 2.2 urban resident, that means that we will still need to build a lot of infrastructure and new forms of urban built environment. And so that means that if we use the current, more conventional ways of designing the city and then the materials of a higher carbon contents that we use, that means that we're locking in an enormous amount of greenhouse gas today and in the future. So I think that's the thing that we need to think about when we're thinking about the emerging urban forms, especially in Southeast, East Asia, and Africa. And that's where the biggest challenge we have, because there is the lack of funding. It requires more coordination between the national, the municipal, the regional entities, and also manage the three objectives of, you know, climate mitigation, climate adaptation, and also how to be resilient towards all the shocks that are coming on our way.
1: Can I just add to that? Because my points were mainly about the UK. Uh, But Anna's points are, you know, 2.2 billion more people in, in urban settings, mainly in the global south. And this is going to be really problematic. And one of the problems is that the Global South has a far smaller share of architects and engineers with the expertise to design low-carbon cities for them. So that's where the cities are exploding, and Mm -hmm. that's where the, the least expertise is and the least resources are to address the problems properly.
0: Lisa, do you have an example of where this is working, where people are actually putting some of the proposed solutions into play and going, hey, actually, we think we're, we're onto something here?
3: Well, I think that there's many sort of small communities that are coming together and doing positive things that we probably don't even know about. On the bigger scale, what I would say is, you know, China, of course, is the leader in renewable energy. So even though they're still building coal plants, they're way ahead of the game in terms of renewable energy. And so it's a complicated picture, right? So I guess what I wanted to talk about, though, is that how do the communities come together to solve problems like this? And I'm going to use an example from the United States. The Center for Urban Transformation recently held what we call City Sprints with the city of San Diego in California. And what we do is we partner with cities to help them with their decarbonization goals. So they pick the priority. And in fact, they picked decarbonizing existing buildings precisely because that is the issue we've been discussing. So they work with the World Economic Forum to bring together the stakeholders that are needed in the community. And then we also bring in our forum partners who have expertise in this area. And then we partner with the people of San Diego who are passionate enough about this topic to take time out of their day three times to work through what are the options on the table, what could be the most effective, and then decide on an action plan. And then they continue on to implement this. It's not rocket science, right? (laughs) This is just good old fashioned kind of community engagement and community planning. And that's really what it takes. You need political leadership. You need a culture shift, frankly, and we need financing. And the financing models do exist. There is money for this. It's a question of getting the money going in the right direction. And so the community is key to these questions.
0: With communities that are able to advocate, organize, they've got enough social capital to set, be able to take time out of their day and get together and have a meeting. And the people who are at greatest risk from the climate shocks, from the impacts, from the from the threat of climate change, have the least ability to advocate for themselves.
3: That's 100% accurate. And I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. And I don't know who does, to be honest. You know, I do think that it is possible and it has been demonstrated that communities that, even if they're poor, if they have some social cohesion there, that you can build on that and you can make change.
0: Anna, you're nodding there. What role do you see business having
2: in enabling that, that social cohesion? Before I answer the question on, on, on the business, can I just pick up the resilience angle and then link that to the business point? I think the resiliency element of the city is absolutely critical. And it's not only for climate change. I think during COVID, we at Chatham House did quite a lot of research around the resiliency and preparedness for pandemic and for other kinds of shock. And as Lisa said, the fact that you have an existing sort of social fabric in place that has network between families, government, private sector is what make those social fabric more resilient against any form of shock, right? I think that's the thing that I want to make. And then under the role of the private sector, I think for all the investments that we will need for the climate adaptation or resilience or for the mitigation, we, all the cities will need a massive amount of investment in that space. And this is where the public-private partnership becomes really important. And what is also critical to this is the governance around it, Right. You, you can have public private partnership where there isn't trust and you do have examples of, you know, private companies or entities making a lot of money out of uh, community development projects. Or you have a different kind of uh, public private partnership where you do have a more shared co-benefit, shared governance uh, model that you do then enable investment into the critical areas that city or that metropolitan area need. So the point is actually the necessity for the role of private sector, but then linked to that is what kind of governance model decision making is linked to that so that the co-benefit element is better shared.
1: I think your question, uh, your previous question actually raises the issues. Is what is our role in all of this? You know, in the UK, we're a country of uh, 60 million people on a planet of 8 billion. What does it matter what we do? Well, I think it matters in a number of ways. One is we have to do our bit. We have an opportunity to develop technologies and to exercise global leadership. If you're looking to the global south as having the majority of the large-scale problems that's going to come with both urbanization and climate change and overheating, et cetera, and flooding, uh, huge flooding problems. I think that's where our technologies, our leadership, our experience can be brought to bear. Uh, There's a
0: risk though, isn't there, that it just becomes a kind of a colonial endeavor, but climate
1: change. Uh, well, I don't, this is not quite savior stuff. This, okay. is about, this is about sharing technologies and I think is very, very important going forward.
3: The sharing of technology, of course, it has to be done in a contextual way, right, to avoid that whole colonial problem. But I do think that Public-private partnership model is critical. We sometimes refer to it more as public-private collaboration because the PPP can, in some places, can be controversial. And I really like the collaboration word better because it's not just government and business, this binary relationship. It's a holistic collaboration. Civil society, communities, academics, you know, everyone needs to come to the table. Philanthropy, in particular, particularly in uh, poorer communities, philanthropy can play a, a really critical role. The, the public-private collaboration gets to exactly what we were talking about. That's, that's an element of the social cohesion.
0: I think it does require perhaps a shift for some folk, doesn't it, that there can be enormous environmental and social good and profit. It doesn't have to be one or the other. We, we sometimes end up in this kind of false dichotomy, don't we? It's either one or the other.
2: The way I think about it, it has three layers. So there is the layer of the design of the city at the stage of planning and design is when we can embed in already sort of the green spaces, the circular elements of it that limits the number of building stocks that we need. That's one layer. The second layer is once you know the building stocks, then you specify for lower carbon materials, whether it's low carbon steel or nature-based, sort of bio-based material like cross-laminated timber, and then on the existing building stock, then using low of efficiency measures for heating and cooling and something that we should also remember is that even if in the developed countries we have a large amount of building stock some of them are aging so we need to be prepared for that circularity element of how do we sort of recycle reuse those old aging stocks but also you know prepare them for the new so this is some of the studies that we we look at it says that we are actually on the second wave of urbanization is that it's happening somewhere else and it will have to be completely different to the business as usual that we have sort of the track that we have been so far. Otherwise, we won't be able to achieve the commitments that we have on net zero.
0: Let's talk more about urbanisation. So we've got almost two billion people, that's one in four of us living in high-risk flood zones. Majority of those people are in developing countries and river plains and coastlines. We've got more than two more billion people who are going to be in urban centers by 2050. I remember back in the day when I was at high school doing my geography GCSE, we talked about push pull factors that pushed people into urban centers and. If I remember correctly, the kind of the, the general flavor of the conversation was maybe we need to reduce the push-pull factors so people stay where they are in those rural places. Is that a very old-fashioned way of looking at it? I mean, should we actually be saying urbanization is the way it's going to go? We just need to densify cities. We need to make them more efficient, more circular, more livable, or do we need to spread people out a bit? Jack, I'm going to come to you first.
1: I wish I could remember back to my uh, (laughs) uh, uh, geography lessons at school. I'm very impressed. Uh, Well, I want to paint a more optimistic picture. Uh, I I think the sustainable city is actually going to be a great place to be. If you look at our cities at the moment, particularly in the West, we tend to have very homogeneous areas. You have the office zone, you have the industrial zone, you have the residential zone, and you, you travel between them, et cetera. And the... All very codified. I think the city of the future, the sustainable city, is going to be much more heterogeneous. You're looking towards the 20-minute city, the walkable city. Of packs, cells, if you like, that build up to make a larger city, where you have everything that you might need from education to healthcare to recreation to green spaces. We're going to have to have a lot more green spaces in our uh, cities of the future to stop heat islands building up, using roofs a lot more. Look at all those roofs that we waste mm-hmm. uh, in cities that could be used for recreation and for greening and for pleasure. So I think the model in my mind of a future city. Is something which is a sort of joy to live in and a pleasure to walk in, uh, possibly even car free. So I think actually we should have that in mind. Now, it's absolutely wonderful for those people who do want to live and work in the countryside. And of course, Zoom and, and Teams calls makes that even more possible. But I think our cities should be fabulous places to be.
0: Lisa, what's the global perspective on that? The notion of the 15-minute or the 20-minute city, the cells, the the sum of the parts, uh, making a a whole that's greater?
3: I was fascinated by the fact that the 15-minute city, 20-minute city framework just kind of exploded during COVID, right? It's really a historic way of development. You know, it was unplanned development at one time, right? To have a walkable, dense urban place because that's what you need to grow an economy like that's how creativity happens that's how economic development happens and so you know the controversies around it aside it is a historic and human habitat that is our natural habitat right that's what we've created as humans it's our beehive unfortunately we have spoiled the hive a little bit (laughs) or maybe a lot so I, i agree that's exactly what we need to do but i also would Add that there's a lot of issues around water, serious fresh water shortage. That's already happening all over the world. There are many cities that have too much water, so we need to build a lot of infrastructure to capture that, save it, reuse it in the most efficient ways. I really feel there are so many good ideas out there and we're starting to move on them. We have a long way to go, but in terms of renewable energy, desalinization, and capturing fresh water, These are all gonna be really critical things to achieve those beautiful cities that we want to live in. Those are the elements that are fundamental to being able to have the greenery, to have the park space. We need to start moving on these quickly.
0: Anna, I'm guessing you'll say that there's no kind of one size fits all. There's no kind of template that will work for everywhere. It has to be diverse. It has to be appropriate, you know, the right city in the right place, I guess. The overall principle of accelerating change, zooming us into this
2: kind of urgent future, how do we speed up? Ah, how do we speed up the definition of it's a complex socioeconomic process? And we need to think about the interplay between urban and rural. Because if we think about all the challenges that we have around the world in terms of freeing up land for nature, you know, reduce the impact of land for food production, then how do we manage the footprint of urban forms? And just like you said, it's the diversity. And her heterogeneity of it, but there is something that really captures my imagination about sort of the monocentric cities form, and then the polycentric city forms. Right? I think the fifteen-minute, twenty-minute city is kind of that polycentric. And polycentric being lots as of in m- m- multiple centers instead of one center. It's almost like the urbanization process is an inevitability of it. The question is how we walk into that future. And just like Jack said, almost like we have to be optimistic about it, and especially because we all. I mean, at least I'm recording it from London, like I, I'm, a, I'm an urban dwelling human being. And I do think that if we can imagine in our current living spaces, how we can engage with our environment in a completely different way and think about our responsibility in it, then we can find ways of, through our own behavior of moving around or choices of food that we, we buy. We can be that agent of change while also engaging with community projects to shape My urban space.
0: If there was one city, Jack, Lisa, Anna, that you would say, they're doing great things, go find out more about them. What would be that city? Anna, I'm going to come to you first. Singapore.
2: If you look at all their plans on also how they're integrating nature-based solution into their city living. And I also think that as, as a city state, they are making very aggressive policies around it. especially it's based in Asia and also it's an an emerging economy have something to look up to although some would argue that they are actually developed economy
3: my favorite city is London actually and I'm not just saying that to play to the audience here I am just so impressed by how it renews itself it's constantly renewing itself and shape-shifting the city continues to invest in transit continues to invest in social housing and undertakes very ambitious redevelopment projects, such as Olympic Park. Of course, there's always tension in these developments, and they're not always carried out perfectly, but it just really feels like London has more of a balance in terms of competing interests. And the mayor, I think, is doing an excellent job. And Jack?
1: Well, Singapore is a great example, but I'm going to go to Barcelona which is the most extraordinary uh, example of urban regeneration from a clapped out uh, container port to something which is a real delight to live and work in. It's one of the densest cities in the world, but you wouldn't know it looking at it because it's essentially built at about seven to nine storeys. So it's an amazing example of urbanization, relatively low rise, lots of great transportation and a lot of fun and games.
0: And one last question. Often when we think about the imminent apocalypse, we feel frozen with with fear, with the, the enormity of what's ahead of us. So just to bring it back, boil it right down to individual action. Although obviously individuals have to be part of networks, have to be bigger parts of bigger organizations. In terms of individual action, what would you be your one urge or encouragement or sympathetic pat on the back to to make people feel optimistic and hopeful about the future that this is something that we can get engaged with and change for the better
2: anna i have i have three eat less meat i'm a i eat meat but i eat a lot less if you can choose a public form of transport or a cycle and continue to be hopeful because it is really big, challenging, but things are changing. So it is almost like, where do we look? And I, as a change activist, I like to look at where there are innovation and pockets of the future so that I can remain hopeful and also remain active in enabling those changes. Lisa.
3: So I would say get to know your neighbors and interact with them regularly and pay attention to local politics and not through social media pay attention to what your leaders are doing and what they are funding as Joe Biden always says don't tell me what you believe in tell me what your budget is and I'll tell you what you believe in and that is the truth I'm Jack
1: well I already don't eat meat so I've ticked one box I would say speak up in other words engage you know get involved very important And lastly look for the win-wins I think there are win-wins in this situation it's not all doom and gloom so look for the ways through that we can decarbonize, that we can build better cities, which is affordable, in fact, contributes to our economy.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure discussing this subject with you, Anna Yang, Lisa Chamberlain, and in the studio, Jack Pringle. Thank you all for your time today. You've been listening to the ITN Business Extra podcast on cities of the future. If you liked what you heard, please do share this podcast through your usual podcast platforms. And if you head to the ITN Business Hub website, you can watch all the films in the Cities of the Future programme. From me, Arianna Potter, goodbye.